Now, I was listening recently to an old pop tune from the 1980s that really surprised me how it had the power to sort of move me all over again. Cindy Lauper's Time After Time. It was the last one you listened to this song. It really is one of those that kind of perfectly sums up this song. That time in life when you're young and you just don't have any idea how your life is going to turn out. And what's surprising about the song is it kind of still fits when you're a little bit older and you kind of pretty much know how your life is going to turn out. You know, predictably, the song kind of enters the mind of a young person who's trying their best to figure out why a certain relationship just won't stick. The ticking clock kind of reminds her of someone that she lost but still loves. And there's this confusion that surrounds her thoughts, but it's really nothing new. But it's really the second stanza that kind of roots the message of the song. It goes like this. She says, sometimes you picture me and I'm walking too far ahead. You're calling me. I can't hear what you've said. Then you say, go slow, and I fall behind. The second hand unwinds. What's she saying? She's reflecting on the fact that no matter how hard they tried to work, they just couldn't make their connection work. You know, at first she's too far ahead, and then she's falling behind. Meanwhile, there's that ticking clock, isn't there? Bringing longing and sadness and regret over what might have been. So all she has is just this promise to make to him, right? That if you're lost, you can look and you'll find me time after time. Isn't that pathetic? (laughs) Wonderfully pathetic. Here's what's crazy though. I found that it was amazing how many times that song has been remade since it was released many, many years ago. Of course, the song itself went on to be number one, but in its, since it's in its heyday, but literally a hundred different versions have been re-recorded of that, even appearing in a McDonald's commercial a couple of years ago by the Bonnie Vare guy. Seriously. Nobody knows who Bonnie Vare is except the young people in the room. That's okay. Why is the question? Why are people still finding that moving? I think the answer is because there is something universal about the sensation of having desires unmet. A a feeling unfinished of of a life that feels like it's constantly missing the mark. Spanish philosopher George Santillana was the one who said, nothing can so pierce the soul as the uttermost sigh of the body. Hmm. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of climbing into your car and you kind of have a certain motion that's kind of brimming there right at the edge that you're trying really hard to control, but then all of a sudden you turn on your music and that song comes on (laughs) and it so washes over you and cripples you. You feel like you're going to have to pull over, you know, to get over whatever you're experiencing. I came across some research when I was doing this study where people were looking at this question as to why when people are sad, they want to listen to sad songs, which is really counterintuitive. You think that if you were sad, you want to listen to something upbeat, but they found that just the opposite was true. And so when these researchers began to ask them why they wanted that, they had a fascinating response because they said one of the most popular reasons why is because they had a desire to feel connected because there was a common sense of humanity that you got once you realize that you're in the midst of a sad period. I think that's amazing because that means that our songs have this way of summing up our experiences so, so that when that emotion is released in a song, we suddenly feel connected again. We feel like we're not alone. I mean, I, I've got music in my music catalog that, I mean, as soon as that thing turns on, it'll immediately take me back into the headspace I was in when I was going through it, when it moved me that time. 
Well, look, we're looking at this Advent season at these three songs and how they were received by the people who first heard the good news that God was finally breaking into humanity and bringing about this fulfillment of these Jewish people's hopes. We considered songs of revolution and songs of joy and adulation. Well, this morning, we come to a song uh, that's sung by what we believe to be an aging prophet who is told by direct revelation from the Holy Spirit, no less, that God is ready. He's ready to break in the world in a way that you hardly could imagine. But here's what's interesting. Rather than receiving that news the way Mary did, with a call to revolution, or rather than receiving it the way in which the angels did by kind of bursting into rapturous praise, Simeon actually takes the news very soberly, very pensively, and honestly with a healthy dose of of foreboding as well. And I think it's because he intends to prepare everyone after him for what exactly it's going to mean in their lives if this baby is who he says he is. So we come this morning to something of a sad song, a song of longing, and I want to ask the question, what would cause that? I think three things. The waiting, the resolution, and the gravity is what brings about the sort of longing in the song. Let's look at the first one first, the waiting. Look, verse 25 introduces Simeon as a righteous man. His righteousness is demonstrated first, presumably because he's got the Holy Spirit on him but mostly because it says he's, quote, waiting for the consolation of Israel. What in the world does that mean? You know, we don't talk in our nation about the consolation of America. And we're the toughest, right? We're the best. Now, we're citizens of a country that are marked by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We, we value innovation and advancement. And by and large, we don't, we don't allow people to see us publicly uh, as being perceived as needy in any way. It's not like us. But that's not Simeon. Simeon represents the marginalized of history. Uh, His people have long since lost any sense of political sovereignty. They're waiting. They're waiting for relief. And God has promised his relief. Except that was 400 years ago. 400 years have gone with no sign from God. Can you imagine that? Ten generations have come and gone while they're still waiting. Look, we saw this fact over and over again when we were studying Luke last year. But we find that God's God's economy, this way of unfolding his plan, is always full of paradoxes. It's never what you think. And honestly, Christmas is a big one, isn't it? I mean, if God was planning to intervene and make this grand instrument, how would he do it? What would you expect he would do? What kind of nation would he choose? And and what kind of instruments would he use to sort of execute his uh, grand vision? Well, if you look in verses 23 through 24, you find out that Mary and Joseph go through these purification rites. And what we find is the truth behind their economic status at this point. They have doves. Now, look, you got a dove in that era because you couldn't afford a lamb. It shows that they were poor people. I love this thought. Jesus' parents could not afford a lamb. So they had to settle for pigeons. Why? Because he was poor. And this is God who is capable of all things, but he comes with a mode of entrance that is exactly the opposite that you would think. There's the paradox. I I used to tell students this. Jesus was far more likely to be born in the Delta than he would be in Oxford, Mississippi. It feels like something we should remember. But as it turns out, it's the context in which our Savior comes that was really vital to his message. Because as it turns out, the Bible talks a lot about waiting. For these Jewish people, they were waiting for God to come and rescue Israel, to to bring them their comfort. But even after Jesus' earthly ministry, 
God's people are still going to find themselves in periods of waiting. And I don't know a better example in the New Testament that describes our waiting than a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 of the unprepared foolish bridesmaids. You remember this story? It starts out with a groom who comes to get his bride, and it turns out that half of the bridesmaids are unprepared for his coming. So they're, they're judged and not allowed to enter the wedding feast because of it. Well, I was listening to the most wonderful uh, sermon recently where a preacher was explaining that one of the reasons why we misunderstand that parable is because we don't understand how ancient Near Eastern weddings and marriages actually happen. So he goes on to explain it. Marriages in that time were arranged, first of all. Mom and dad picked the one that you got. So the groom would go to the bride-to-be's house and she presented with a cup of wine, which was his way of saying, I accept my parents' choice of you as my bride. And if she took the cup and drank from it, she accepted the parent's choice as well. And immediately after, the groom would head back home to start working. What was he working on? Well, he was working on adding a room onto his father's house. Because the family establishment had rooms that were added on where the grooms would build their families in. So the father, meanwhile, would inspect the son's work. And only he could decide whether a room was ready for the groom to go and get the bride. But when the father saw that everything was finally ready, he'd tell the son, he'd give the son the green light, go get your bride, son. And so the son would wait until he could surprise her. Usually at nighttime, he would go and get her. And the bridesmaids were supposed to be the ones that woke up first. And they were to meet the groom and greet him with some sense of ceremony. And they'd take their lamps in the night and walk him through back to the house and prepare for the big wedding feast. And of course, it would go on sometimes for days, sometimes for weeks, you would have these wedding feasts that would occupy the entire village. But in Jesus' parable in Matthew 25, we find that there's actually two different kinds of waiting bridesmaids. The one half are wise, they're prepared for his coming, but the other half are foolish because they forgot to save their oil for their lamps. So they weren't prepared. And actually, they're judged like really harshly for not being prepared for his return. So when I'm a kid, I used to read this parable and think to myself, okay, scary. Um, What if Jesus comes back and I'm sinning, I'm not prepared, and I get kicked out of the wedding feast uh, because he came back when he surprised me? Is that what the parable means? But this preacher I I was listening to made, I thought, the best observation because he said, look, What would have to be going on in the minds of these foolish uh, uh, bridesmaids to have not been as prepared as they were? In other words, he probably thought to themselves, the bridesmaids probably thought to themselves, you know what? I'm not sure that guy's coming at all. And you know what? If he's been waiting this long, oh, he's found somebody else. Or actually, I don't even think he really loves you. And therefore, there was no need to keep the oil in your lamp because they didn't honestly think that he really cared about the bride that much. That is different. <laughs> the groom kicks these foolish bridesmaids out of the wedding celebration, not because they were, they were foolish or, they, or they, they were sinners. It's because they doubted his love for his bride. That's different. What's the point? The point is that God gives his people seasons of waiting in order to push us to a question. And here's the question. What are you waiting for? What exactly do you expect to receive from God should he intervene in your life? How will we greet 
the judge of all the earth in that time in which we must meet him. Because the foolish bridesmaids have allowed their circumstances or worry to cast doubt on the heart of the groom. That's the real problem in the parable. And it's the real struggle with waiting, isn't it? Because look, don't miss the lesson. Simeon can sing the song that he does because the advent of the Lord is something he longs for. And he longs for it because he knows he's going to get it. He expects comfort because he knows God to be a God of comfort. So look, this says, which gives us a great instruction about our own waiting, doesn't it? Is there a smiling face that you encounter when you sort of uh, access the Lord in your prayers? What's that face look like to you? Because, or, or is that longing that I have more properly called dread? Because only when we're in seasons of waiting, living in this in-between, can we really understand what the song is that's in our own hearts. And waiting is what brings it out and makes Simeon's song a bit of a sad song. So that's the first point, the waiting. Secondly, though, we see the resolution. Because it occurs to me that maybe we really shouldn't call this a sad song. It's more a song of longing, but, but it's a longing that for him has been fulfilled. He's reached the end of his journey, he believes, and he invites Mary and Joseph into his same experience of acknowledging and believing in the uniqueness of this baby. So look, start in the middle of verse 30. This is great stuff here. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Man, right out of the gate, you see Jesus' connection to God's salvation. You know, the child's identity is completely clear. God and Jesus are absolutely inseparable, which is pretty overwhelming. I mean, Simeon believes that he is looking at the source of life itself in the eyes of this baby. Therefore, Simeon's job was done. One commentator referred to his job as to be a sentinel for the Messiah. That's his description. No kidding. What else could he possibly have done that was going to top this, right? But then in verse 31, we see exactly what has thrilled him about this. This is fascinating. This full scope of salvation. Look what he says there. He says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Ha. This salvation that's going to culminate in this baby is not just going to be for the religious insiders, the Jews. And, and, and the crazy thing is, if you judge from how they treated Jesus, certainly how they treated his apostles, no one was expecting this, which is nuts, if you really think about it. I mean, this is a testimony to cultural forget, forgetfulness, isn't it? Because clear as day in their own Bibles, in places like Genesis chapter 12, you've got God making a promise to Abraham that through him, what? All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Salvation was always, salvation for Israel was always intended for the rest of the world, for the nations, always. Here's the point. Any vision of a future for a Christian person that doesn't have global aspirations in them is, is not just deficient, it's actually contrary to what God is planning. Once again, any song that you're singing, spiritually speaking, this morning, that lacks a heart for your neighbor, a heart for, for your annoying family member, a heart for your uh, political rival, perhaps a heart for your ethnic oppressors. It doesn't have the salvation that Simeon's singing about. In other words, his song kind of makes us check our aspirations. Really, what am I after here? But there's one test, I think, that he gives us that makes us for certain. And it's there right there in verse 29. He says, Lord, now 
you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Okay, so in the Latin translation of the New Testament, those first two words in that sentence of verse 29 are nunc dimittis, or loosely, I can die now. Simeon's saying, I have fulfilled my purpose. I know why I'm here, and I know what I'm here to do. I was here to bear witness to the identity of this baby. Now I'm ready to meet you face to face, Lord. It's a powerful application here, because what Simeon is saying is, is that anyone who has met Jesus in the eye, through the eyes of faith is prepared to die. And someone who has not, whether they're young or old, is not ready to die at all. Now I can die, he says, which actually is the posture of every Christian or should be the posture of every believing person. In other words, the meaning of Jesus coming, Simeon knows, is that ultimately death is destroyed. Intuitively, he sees all this. Death for Simeon no longer intimidates him. It's lots, it's sting, as the Apostle Paul will put it later on in the New Testament. Now look, I realize that at this point, it's very easy to read Simeon wrongly here because you could read this as him as if he's saying, at last, I have finally filled up my bucket list. I can go home and just keel over and die. <laughs> if you were in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I have not stopped thinking about this. Sorgan Fry has been uh, teaching uh, through um, Sunday school on glorification and we talked about death. And Rob Crager, bless your heart, sir, you brought something up that I cannot stop thinking about. Rob was saying... Should we, in one of the question at Q and answer time, he was saying, should Christians really have bucket lists? And it suddenly occurred to me, because if you think about a bucket list, a bucket list is saying, man, I got to do all this stuff before I die, because once I die, fun's over then. You know, once you die, you're dead. You'll have no more experiences after that. I thought to myself, that's so true. Because since when do Christians think that death is the end? Quite the opposite. Christians have an eternity to do everything we ever wanted to do. Simeon is not saying, wow, now I can, I can die because nothing is going to beat this experience. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am nothing more than the servant of my master Yahweh. I have done what he has asked me to do so that now in my passing, I can go and get orders for what he'll have me do in the next life. Look, we're not done with our work when we die. <laughs> The, the mission isn't, and the mission here isn't really even complete. I mean, the truth of the matter is, even in the new heavens and in the new earth, we will all experience work, we believe. We have every reason to believe that in that place, we will have a station, a, a job, some task to do that will ultimately be for his glory and for my good. So I think Simeon really helps us kind of work through not being so attached to the world, doesn't he? But look, think about this, because there's really no better way to know if you've heard the song that Simeon is singing than to take a little brief temperature over your heart at the thought of your dying. There's not one person in this room, no one in this room, is going to get out of that experience. And one of the sobering realities of it is it's ultimately a journey that we all have to take alone. It sobers us in that moment to say that maybe we look now at this baby and realize that he's coming to bring salvation for all. And what, 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 what Simeon is saying is I can now face the wretched blessing that is my death, not to say that I don't dread the experience and aspects of the journey and the unknown, but always with a longing that he's got something for me on the other side. 
He's not finished with me. I can die now, no matter what age I am. So the song is a song of longing because of the waiting and also the resolution, but thirdly, because of the gravity. You know, finally, we get this picture of Mary and Joseph. I mean, mouths wide open, I'm sure, at what this guy's just singing to him. But he's got one last prophecy that's just for them. And I think it's important to realize the gravity of what he says because of what he does not say. <laughs> like if you and I actually encountered uh, Mary and Joseph at this point, we would say things like, oh, I just wanted to say congratulations on being the parents of the Messiah. You must be so proud. That's what we would say. Instead, what Simeon looks and says, you know, I've got to deliver news that's a little bit harder, but it's going to be super important as you raise this child. Look what he says in verse 34. He says, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Take that last little phrase there that is opposed. He's basically saying, guys, this is going to be hard. This is going to be a challenge. Jesus is going to have a ministry, it occurs to me, uh, that would be almost like a magnet. If you approach him on the right side in the correct way, he will be irresistibly attractive. And that attraction will result, he says, in their rising. By the way, that word rising, in almost every other case that it's used in the New Testament, is attached to resurrection. Which is amazing, if you think about Simeon's foresight here. Because what Simeon is saying is, is that every time he starts to think about his death and thinking about him dying now, I can die now, he immediately, his thoughts are drawn to rising again, which is an incredible prophecy. (laughs) Because he says, seeing this child has removed my fear of death because he's going to be about bringing resurrection. Simeon can face his death because he knows it's not the end. And what that means is there's always hope for people who sing Christmas songs. At least the kind that Simeon sings. I I think it's hard to imagine Simeon does not have places like Psalm 40 in his mind when he sings this way. This is a psalm about waiting. Listen to this. The psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Now listen to the result in verse 3. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Do you catch that? When God rescues his people, the main effect of such will be that lots of people will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. In other words, God's salvation, his resurrection, his overcoming death always has the nations in mind. Outreach is at the heart of all of these covenant promises, all of them. But of course, the opposite is true. If Jesus is a magnet, you approach him on the right side and he's attractive. If you go to the other side, he will be absolutely repellent. Or anyone who decides they're going to approach him in pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency, evil intentions, they'll fall when they get around him. In other words, when Jesus comes, there's something very sobering about his mission. But he has one last word to include to Mary. Two weeks ago, we saw that in her Magnificat, Mary sang that future generations would call her blessed. Now she finds out that that blessing that she's going to be also comes with great sorrow. Look at verse 35. Simeon says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And think about what Mary's got ahead of her. We know it. She didn't. Her journey is going to include her family's flight to Egypt, her son's ministry being constantly misunderstood and rejected, the the horrible events of, of, of his death 
and his terrible trial, the injustice of his accusers, and then having to watch her son die an evil execution. Okay, every mother in the room just sighed. I'm going to tell you why. Because there's just nothing quite like the overwhelming elation, but also the searing pain that is motherhood, isn't it? She understands that deeply. But what I want to leave you with this morning is that it's somewhere in the mixture of both of those realities, joy and resolve, happiness with sobriety, gladness and sorrow, that we see the longing in our songs, that we make sense of the longing in our songs. Because it's the hallmark of Christian maturity to sing songs of hope. But these are not silly, giddy ditties that we're humming. They're actually full and rich because the journey's long and sometimes, quite frankly, it's hard. And so what we find is that Christmas calls out from us these wonderful character traits it's not just here to be, be, bring nostalgia or maybe to bring together my sort of desperate family, but it's supposed to make us wise, glad, sober, hopeful, longing, resolute, in a word, mature. There's a tombstone in England of an old cavalier soldier who lost his life and his property in a battle for the royalist cause. And the epitaph across his tombstone reads, He served King Charles with a constant, dangerous, and expensive loyalty. Man, isn't that a great way to say it? Service to Jesus is a constant, dangerous, and expensive proposition for his people. You know, the, the, the Newt diminishes Luke's fourth and final Christmas carol. Um, but, it was, but his the song that, that um, Simeon sings was paraphrased uh, by T.S. Eliot in his uh, poem of the same name. And I, and I love the way how Eliot sort of grasps it because I feel like he's trying to get at the feeling of what it feels like to be Simeon in that moment. Listen to a couple stanzas of this. He says, My life is light, waiting for the death wind, like a feather on the back of my hand, dust and sunlight and memory in corners, wait for the wind that chills towards the dead land. Now, at this birth season of decease, let the infant the still unspeaking and unspoken word grant Israel's consolation. To one who has 80 years and no tomorrow, I'm tired with my own life and the lives of those after me. I'm dying in my own death and the deaths of those after me. So let my servant depart, having seen thy salvation. Do you hear that? That's maturity. And I realize this is such a different way of thinking about Christmas, but we do violence to it because we mostly end our Christmas stories at, 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 the, at the three kings that come, you know, the, the, the magi gifts. But frankly, that's actually where the account, it kind of turns kind of dark. And Mary and Joseph have to flee to Egypt, fearing Herod's murderous campaign. You realize this, Herod goes on to execute every single male child throughout the area of Bethlehem. It's one of the most horrific things in all the Bible. But here's the deal. Those stories are just as much a part of the Christmas narrative... <laughs> as the glowing manger and the lowing cattle are. There's sobering stuff in this thing. Look, what does that leave us to? I don't know who needs to hear this for, for 2020. It may be me. But the songs of Christmas are rich, aren't they? They can reach the highest heights, but also full of, of revolution, but also longing as well. So as we look kind of into the unknown of 2020, I, I just wanted you to see that somewhere... 
and the swirling of these emotions surrounding Christmas is something that God is making us to be. Something that he is filling up our longing for so that we can find ourselves saying with the hymn writer, how can I keep from singing? We'll do it forever. Why not start right now? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us a song because honestly, many of us in this room, they're not needing to be educated on that longing. They know what it feels like to be in between. They know what it feels like to have promises that they feel like were made that just haven't been fulfilled. So Father, would you in our singing meet us in this hour? Let us see, Father, that you are the one who brings great resurrection, that we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear what comes for us because you've conquered because of what you did when you became a child on the first Christmas. Would you do that in us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.